2: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
3: hello and welcome to the new statesman podcast I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and every week the team and I will be bringing you an exciting mix of discussion, interviews and stories. This week we discuss reshuffle rumours with Raphael Baer and George Eaton, NS bloggers Alan White and Kate Belgrave talk about their investigation into the Coalition's secret cuts, and Carolyn Crampton, Laurie Penny and I disagree about Jane Austen. I'm joined by our politics editor, Raphael Bear and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to talk about the week's politics. First up, I think we have to catch up with Labour post-Ed um, Miliband's speech this week. George, did it calm the nerves and soothe you know, troubled times? It did.
4: I think it was one of the uh, best days he's had, actually. And the, the Blair intervention meant that uh, you know, all of the Blairites who could potentially have come out and said he didn't go too far, or, he's made this mistake... Uh, were calmed. And that, that was a was a was a big boost. And it is a, a brave step. I mean, the more I think about it, the more radical it seems that it could lead. It, it is the biggest transformation in the party's relationship with the unions since it was founded. Um, and it and it could mean the loss of millions in funding. And th- that sounds uh, very negative. Uh, the gain for Miliband is that he has won the right now to frame the Tories as the party of big money to say, look, this is my offer of funding reform. What's yours? Uh, And if the Tories don't play ball on that, then he'll be able to hammer them relentlessly between now and the election as as a party in hock to vested interests.
3: And practically, we've been talking about him losing 5 million of the 8 million of union funding. What's the plan to make up for that money? I mean, the Labour Party's already far more in debt than the other parties put together, right? Well, I heard
4: today that Miliband uh, spoke at the party HQ yesterday and told them that there would be uh, job losses as a result. So, one answer is the Labour Party will simply have less money to spend. Um, and another possibility is that the unions are still going to have, uh, aren't actually going to lose money. They'll just be giving less directly in affiliation fees to Labour. So, uh, the remainder will go into their political fund, which is what they use for large one off donations to Labour at the time of elections to pay for sort of big billboard posters mm-hmm. and things. They could make up the shortfall through that but it would look um, quite cynical for Miliband to basically still receive these large donations in the union bosses, having said he wants to end that, which is why he really needs to get a deal on party funding. His best hope of doing that is to pick up the phone to Nick Clegg and say, look, let's talk, and can you please sort of push the Tories on this and force them to come to the table?
3: And Raph, how are Lib Lab relations at the moment? Is that Will Nick Clegg take that phone call? Will he be happy to take uh, that phone call?
2: Well, Nick Clegg's he's always happy in theory to talk about things that can be presented as obvious areas for cross party cooperation um, and party funding uh, is very much one of them Um, uh, certainly more generally lib lab relations are are much better than they were sort of two years ago the, the, the labor party had a massive tantrum obviously when the Lib Demons went into coalition with the Tories because it was felt like a sort of betrayal of a a, a progressive family. uh, They're kind of over that. Uh, Then there was a period where Labour thought, actually, you know what, this coalition is so useless, we're going to win a majority, we're going to win the election, and Libs, you're completely irrelevant, and possibly Nick Clegg's head will be kind of taken off and kicked around as a football behind um, Labour HQ after 2015. So um, they then went into sort of overconfident mode. Now that, that's now road rode back it. they realised how hard it's going to be. Everyone's thinking, crikey, there's probably going to be a hung parliament. Um, and so for the first time in a long time, I, mean, actually I was at a, a, a drinks reception in the deputy prime minister's office last night and all the Lib Dem top brass were there. And they're all feeling quite confident. They know what their strategic position is. They think they're the ones holding the centre. Um, and the only problem is they're still on sort of 10, 11 points in the poll. So they say, you know, it's fine. We know what we're doing. Uh, this seems to be working out quite well. We just now need a few more people to say they'll vote for us. Uh, yeah, so they're not naive about the situation. So from that point of view, uh, Clegg is, he's sort of, they're cultivating careful equidistance now.
3: But Lib Dems have been fairly stable, haven't they? I mean, you don't get the sort of same backbench Lib Dem tantrums that you've had from both sides from Labour and Tories in, in the last
2: year? Well, what the Lib Dem sort of strategists say, their ex- explanation for that is th- this famous expression of sort of hands dipped in blood, that because they all went together into the coalition and like, sort of took the coalition agreement and said, I need everyone to sign up for this. They are all signed up to it. Um, also, th- crucially, just being in government is a win for the Lib Dems in the way that it isn't for Labour or the Tories. And this is a very important point, actually, that the Tories are, are starting to feel more confident at the moment because Labour have had a difficult few weeks um, and they, they're they starting to say, you know, we can actually win this. But by win, what they really mean is get to where they are now, which in 2010 felt like losing. So they're having to redefine their definition of winning um, to something that they thought was losing and that actually probably involves doing another deal with the Lib Dems. And how on earth are they going to do that? So... That sort of the only people who for whom the likeliest outcome of the next election would feel like a good result is the Lib Dems.
3: Um, and when we're talking about party funding, you interviewed Stuart Wheeler, who has donated millions of pounds to UKIP after previously having donated millions of pounds to the Tories. Is that right? Has he donated millions of pounds not
2: use. I wouldn't throw around the word millions. I have lots of money. Yeah. I think we'd probably. I, I haven't seen the accounts recently. So. <laughs> has anyone?
3: Um, but how, how big is the UKIP machine? How much is it a party and how much is it just Nigel Farage being on breakfast telly? Well, one of the
2: interesting things that that Stuart Wheeler said to me was that they are obviously quite worried that um, it is a bit too much, just Nigel Farage going on telly a lot, um, and then his the force of his personality uh, persuading lots of disillusioned voters that they want to vote for UKIP, um, some of them being ex-councillors and people who have some experience of politics to bring to the party. Uh, literally and metaphorically, and and some of them just being nutters who are actually liability and will say stupid racist things and then get them into trouble. Um, and so there is a, there. I got a strong sense from from Stuart Wheeler that they really need now to start turning it into a proper political organisation. Uh, they've got they've hired some policy people, or one policy person in particular. Um, they're trying to you know, get um, for us to do a bit less media, a bit more being a leader and organising stuff um and th- because they recognize that they, the big one is the may next year the european parliamentary elections which people are saying ukip could win uh, and they might not but they'll certainly do very well um and what they need what well, the other parties are starting to say now is you've now had people if they voted ukip as a protest vote once or twice in a local council poll once or twice in a european poll few people three percent voted ukip in the general election You've you've now got UKIP voters. They're not protest voters, they're UKIP voters. Um, And the lesson from Scotland and the SNP is once you've got people doing that two or three times, they stick. Um, And that's something that alarms the other parties and gives UKIP some confidence that if they get their organisation together, they can become a proper political party. My sense is they're not actually that yet.
3: And George, to go back to Labour and talk about this idea of the machine, obviously the, one of the things that really brought Ed Miliband to crisis point was the resignation of Tom Watson as election coordinator. Do you get a sense of who's going to take over that role and, and fulfil that brief for him? There's
4: several names in the mix. One is Douglas Alexander, who ran the party's campaign in 2010 and who Watson said this week um, he would uh, back for the position and... Uh, He's, he's admired for his intellect. Which it took
3: was... a big sting out of that, right? Because there were sort of vague, dark whisperings that uh, Tom Watson and Len McCluskey had conspired to try and yeah. um, get, actually get rid of Douglas Alexander's seat in the, ba- in the boundary changes, I just right? point right. out
2: that lawyers have been all across this allegation in the last week, so <laughs> this is very much something that has been said, but not in any way confirmed or Not in any way confirmed, or, in any way confirmed um, or proven, though. So... So, but
3: then quite significant that Tom Watson is, is, would back yes. Douglas Alexander. Yeah, I mean, that was
4: really sort of an act of detoxification in some ways, and, 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 and a wise one. And the other names that have been mentioned are Michael Duggar, who is currently vice chair, uh, an ally of, of Watson and is close to him, and would, would sort of be quite a good like-for-like replacement. Um, one radical proposal that uh, a Labour figure mentioned to me yesterday is that they could merge the roles of policy coordinator, which is currently held by John Crudders, and election coordinator. And so Crudders would do both, and the view... Is that you can't do um, politics without policy, and you can't separate decision making and campaigning, and you need a fusion between the two. Uh, and Kratos, as well as being sort of quite cerebral and quite wonky, is also a street fighter, someone who's you know, led the campaigning against the the far right of the BNP in, in Dagenham. Mm. And so I think that is that's another idea. I, I don't think it's the most likely one, but it is a it is an
2: option that's being discussed. It
3: concentrates a lot of power in one person's hand. Yeah. Like the party machine, I guess, is the. The
2: feeling against it. Yeah, I'm. Th- um, my own gut feeling is that would not be a great idea for the simple reason that um, inevitably, although no one likes to admit it, you have to say and do things in a political campaign that don't automatically say with you what your long-term mm-hmm. policy thinking is. I mean, a, a classic example is. You know, Labour will obviously campaign on health and the kind of the Tories are wrecking the NHS every time someone sneezes in an A&E ward it's like those filthy Tories they're destroying the NHS. Practical policy making on health is going to end up acquiescing actually to a lot of what the Tories are doing or have done or at least accepting its face fait accompli and thinking um some quite difficult unthinkable things um and you you for that reason, you need one person thinking about health policy, one person running around um, shroud-waving and kicking the stories about how much they've duffed up the health service.
3: Well, we should return to that another week, but for now, thank you, George and Ref.
5: the New Statesman's web editor, and I'm here with two of our regular writers for online, Alan White and Kate Belgrave. And they've been writing a a series for us called The Secret Cuts, which they're going to explain a little bit more about and how it's been working. So Alan, tell us why why The Secret Cuts?
6: Uh, Well, Kate and I have been looking at um, cuts across local and national government, and we found a sort of common thread across all of them. Uh, which is that the majority of the population know very little about why they're happening or indeed the fact that they are happening. Um, we started in um, Barnet uh, local council, um, and we were looking at cuts to social care there. Um, we realised that um, while it was causing quite a lot of uh, noise within the borough itself, it was receiving very little coverage in the mainstream media and it was severely impacting people's lives. Um, There were two real reasons for that. Um, One was a lack of uh, reporting diligence among national Mm. newsrooms. And the other thing was the way that the cuts were being carried out. It was done via outsourcing, which, um, well, for a start, local government cuts are very hard to track anyway um kate with her work on the false economy blog has been doing more than i think it's fair to say any national news organization's (laughs) been doing in that regard um and um uh, uh, the way that the cuts are being done was through outsourcing which is a particularly shadowy and shady way of uh hacking away at jobs um generally such deals are protected by um commercial confidentiality laws, it's very hard to use things like the Freedom of Information Act to uh, find out what's, uh, what's going on. Um, so we did that story and that led us on to look at um, a, a number of other issues and uh, ways in which uh, government, local or national, were, were disguising them.
5: Mm-hmm. So Kate, given that these things are secret and shadowy, how do you go about finding out what's actually happened?
1: Um, well for me it's really, I've been doing this for a long time because I came from a trading background so I had a lot of um, branch contacts, I was in a branch until I was thrown out and then that was unison but it meant that I had a lot of, um, just a lot of contacts with people who you know, care working and that sort of thing. Um, so I had been blogging about that for a long time and then the change of government came because a lot of these issues were actually well underway before then privatisation, outsourcing, that sort of thing, and then people with low wages, having those wages cut further. Um, And when the change of government came in, the first area really that was hit was local government. Mm -hmm. They had to take in-ear cuts. So it's a combination of things, going to protests, um, ringing around, talking to people, having a lot of contacts, just getting out there, getting off, I have to say, much as I love it, getting off social media a lot, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and heading out and just, yeah, just making contact with people in the, that way and getting to know people because a lot of people I interview I go back to mm. and that happened with our second part that we did which was on the Independent Living Fund which is an extraordinary cut from government because this is a fund that's used by people with very severe disabilities um, to pay for extra care hours and you know people can work and they can go to study and all the rest of it they just need that physical support they're cutting that
2: mm. and
1: so when that's cut those people will either have to be, you know, they've taken off to rest homes. I mean, or they've left at home.
5: Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: I think Penny said something about you got a choice between neglect at home or abuse in a rest home, you know, (laughs) this is sort of... It's not really a choice, is it? No. Um, (laughs) So it's that continuing, we'll go back and see those people again in sort of six months because I think the other issue that we have is that people report on something once and that's kind of the end of it because the agenda mm -hmm. shifts, but by sticking to social care and, you know, welfare reform, social security reform, you build up those relationships
5: you mentioned um, social media there and I think anyone who uses Twitter or Facebook yeah. is aware that this is something that there is a significant group of people talking about yeah yeah but you say it's actually more useful to get off there and go. I think people. as a
1: journalist mm. you have to just be very careful that you're extending your reach outside because you talk to a lot of people who for a whole range of reasons are not on social media mm. or um, online and you know there there are economic reasons for that there are also just some people not into it. I mean, I've got people in my own family who are just not really there, you know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, so you have to make sure that you do extend your reach beyond social media and you can get very sort of locked into the debates that are happening there when there are debates happening elsewhere mm. as well. I mean, a lot of people we talked to for the bedroom tax um, article weren't even online. Yeah, yeah. sometimes personal choice, sometimes mm. economics.
6: Yeah, And actually tells you something about the bedroom tax, the age of a lot of those people, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of those people are just on the cusp of retirement, but but aren't retired. And, Mm. um, you know, over the road from them could be some pensioners who are not subject to it. And so, you know, one of the things that we picked up on, I guess, was how divisive it is.
5: In that way, yeah. Mm. So the common thread through all these different cuts you've been looking at is that they are secret, hence the name of the series. Why are they secret? Is there one sort of overarching agenda behind this or is it different reasons? I
6: suppose um, looking at two of them, it's about the sort of interface between local and national government. I mean, if you look at something like the ILF, which I think is a despicable card, Um, it's being sold as a reform it's being Mm. sold that the central government money is being folded into local government money Um, but then you look at the funding environment at this Mm. moment in time and you say well really are the same services going to be going to be provided are they they really going to be there and how are we going to find out and the only way that we're going to know that those services are being provided at that level is is by you know people like me and Kate going around and talking mm-hmm. to people. That's the only way because there's no sort of central monitoring of anything, which was why I was so outraged last night um, at the collective will um, in among parliamentarians not to uh, pursue a cumulative impact assessment for all of the the benefit cuts that are being made, um, and. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about another piece we've done on, on PIP and sort of align with that. That's the
5: personal independence opinion. It is, yeah,
6: yeah and, and align with that, the work capability assessment. Now, c- scores of MPs from, you know, Tories to far-left Labour to all sorts of people in the middle have come to Parliament, have talked about the damage it's doing to people in their constituencies. There's, there's a common consensus that it... it needs severe reform. And and I think if you held a gun to the head of a a huge number of parliamentarians, they'd say it needs to be scrapped. But um, there's an awareness that if they scrap it, it's going to cost a lot more than if they just keep trying to bolt on various little improvements that may or may not work. Um, And uh, I mean, I think you see a similar thing with the bedroom tax, Um, Last night, Liam Byrne provided, actually, by his standards, a pretty devastating analysis of all the stuff that's wrong with it, and then promptly said, well, I'm not going to cut it because I can't pledge, you know, £100 million or whatever spending. Mm. Um, So there's a sort of, not just at the local level that there's a problem, but actually at the national level there's a there's a real kind of conspiracy of silence over some of these things and and over the impacts that they're having i believe
5: and i think it can feel both for people who this is happening to mm-hmm. but also to people reading about it reading what you guys have been finding out that there's a sense that this is the only way that there is no oh, yeah alternative. and i
1: think that's what you have to because the other reason i think things are sort of so-called secret is because the agenda is not one that People want to touch on there's a wider context here and that is austerity mm. and a shift of the exchequer to the private sector that's what this is all about so it's about lining the pockets of ATOS, it's lining the pockets of capital and capital are about to run Barnet Council. There's absolutely no reason why they should there's no justification there's a great deal of work that's been done to deconstruct their arguments and their costings and so on and so forth. Mm. Business plans I've seen there I've seen better things you know, really on the back of a fag packet. I mean it's just appalling that people can do that. And as we say, the story we we did there, the whole notion the first instance with this outsourced care company was gonna make millions and as John Sullivan, who we interviewed, one of the parents said, This is all mental masturbation. <laughs> he said it's just rubbish. And they turn up a year later saying, We haven't made a penny, in fact we're in loss, so all we can do here is cut salaries. But the notion is to prepare that, that company for a, a sort of final privatisation. So that's that's the bigger agenda, and people don't want to touch on that because what you're doing dealing with there in the NHS is the same thing. Massive contracts mm. to huge companies, which are extraordinarily powerful. And, and long really, contracts as well. Oh, long, long contracts. Yeah. Circo, Capita, Virgin, these sort of places, they run the world. Mm. And, you know, I think, I think a Marina Hyde actually did an article and she talked about, you know, how Murdoch sort of saw a change of government to sort of shift in junior personnel you know and i think these private companies see that as well labor tories da, 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 not even particularly relevant capital gets those contracts they've gone for years labor comes in what difference does it make in that sense so i think there are a lot of people who have an investment in keeping that information
5: fairly quiet mm. yeah well i think we'll have to leave it there guys thanks very much for coming in alan and kate and you can read what they've been reporting on newstatesman.com if you search for secret cuts and we hope there'll be more to follow
3: I'm joined by our contributing editor, Laurie Penny, and the web editor, uh, Caroline Crampton, for a new section I like to call Lovely Ladies Talk About Literature. (laughs) Hopefully we'll um, we'll have plenty more in the future. We're going to talk a little bit about um, Jane Austen,
0: because Laurie, you don't like Jane Austen. Well, it's not that I don't like Jane Austen, I think I don't understand Jane Austen, because having been obliged to study her books at university and a little bit at school, I really don't get what it is that's so exciting about it and i sort of slightly resent as well the the way it's dominated um kind of what women are angled into studying in literary terms but that that's what it felt like to me at university anyway
3: on the pro austin camp, caroline why do you (laughs) like jane austen
5: i think i like it because very little happens Mm -hmm. and and yet so much happens if you're on a sort of graph of the scale, if you're setting the bar so low, as all people do is go and have tea with each other and occasionally yeah. they go to a dance. Um, and then some, someone says something to someone unexpectedly. It feels like the earth has split open and demons have come out of hell. You know, And I, I like that kind of amplified feeling of like social more is so closely unpicked.
3: I think the problem is I've been thinking about this since mm-hmm. we had this argument because... This all came back about the idea that we were going to have Jane Austen was going to be the sort of approved woman to be on yep. banknotes, right? Out of any you know British woman of the last however long. Mm-hmm. Really, my love of Jane Austen is actually only a love of pride and prejudice. Persuasion is a bit dull. I'm just going to put this out there. Mm-hmm. Sense and Sensibility, that younger one, just like, you know, I'm going to say Kate Winslet's character, which makes <laughs> me feel about really yes. Um makes me feel bad. Uh, Emma is slightly ruined by the thought of, Gwyneth Paltrow was Emma, but again, maybe this is actually more a problem about the fact that the film versions of this are generally so many film versions. Don't even talk to me about Kira Knightley lo- as ruining my favorite character, Clueless, literally, with you her, with you
5: her love face. Clueless, and that's that's also Emma.
3: I do love Clueless. I really love Clueless. Clueless.
5: No, well, didn't, yeah, which is how she would tries I not to, work that
3: out? She sets up all her friends with guys, but she can't find someone for herself. But the right person for her is right there, and she's just discarded them as being too kind of daggy. That's not the
0: language that Jane Austen uses, (laughs) obviously. That's me paraphrasing. Um, So basically, so many people I really respect and whose taste in books I really respect like Jane Austen that I feel I must have missed something. Mm. Do you like Bridget Jones' Diary? I I wouldn't say I like it, but I can definitely quote bits to you. Because that's Pride and Prejudice. So,
3: you know, there is that, that... idea of that there's one guy who's very attractive and you know dashing and then you, you have to see past that to the real merits of somebody else, mm-hmm. Is I think that's a, as a phenomenal story. Also uh, for me actually, although I love Lizzie Bennet, Mr Bennet is my favourite character yes, in Pride and Prejudice, so yep. he says amazing things like, you know if either after Lizzie comes in and tells him that she's going to get married and Jane's obviously just got married, he says, you know, if any young gentlemen come calling for, for Mary or Kitty, tell them I'm quite at leisure. <laughs> and I really love that and it's one of the few lines of literature that. But I'm, I'm interested, Laurie, because are there other
0: women writers of that period that you, you do like? Um, I have. I know. I know it's a bit later, but I'm. I'm always into the Brontes, and um, I. Uh, somebody. I think basically somebody told me once, as about a fourteen-year-old, that you could either like the Brontes or Jane Austen.
3: I think that's a Beatles, Rolling Stones thing, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. It's like the wild anarchic, kind of slightly crazy, versus the sort of slightly bourgeois kind of you know <laughs> aspirational kind of so you say? saying are you saying
0: that the brontes are the rolling stones yeah and oh no why is, is that, that, but that i'm a beatles girl well, you see, you, you're messing up my whole world view here <laughs> um
5: yeah and caroline what about you
0: oh i don't
5: know i really like both i <laughs> know you've just said mm. i'm not allowed to but i i like the kind of as i said the kind of storm in a teacup jane austen type thing but then i mean who doesn't love the kind of Horrid romance of things mm-hmm. like um, Wuthering Heights and uh, oh, what's the one where is it? You're not going to say Villette, are you? Yes, I was <laughs> Villette, which which I absolutely adore because that's that's a book where she wrote she wrote an ending where the uh, the protagonist, you know, the hero, he sails away mm. and then he he dies. His he's, he's supposed to go and make his fortune and his ship sinks. And he doesn't come back. And uh, she was told spoiler alert. The, well, no, she was told by her publisher that that uh, that was too sad and could she please write a happier ending? That's yeah. fascinating. So, so in these days you get and you can most uh, sort of just you know Wordsworth Classics edition that mm-hmm. you buy will have both endings in. You'll read one yeah, and so then one there'll before. be an appendix with the other one.
0: What I really feel about the Brontes is that they what comes across in their books is this deep longing for something to happen because mm. really nothing happened in their lives apart from grim alcoholism and death. That was it and they never really travel. I mean Charlotte went to Belgium once and that's it. Mm. It's um and I think what comes across for me in Austin is a, a satisfaction with the way things are, and the only way you can escape is men. But in it's a slightly more hopeful vision, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because yeah.
3: essentially, I mean, there's been recent revisionist studies about the idea that there is no way that somebody of um, Lizzie Bennet's class and income level would ever have—you know—that would have been seen like as basically yeah. marrying the servant. Girl,
5: yeah, she would. Like, she would not really have gotten in the same room as him. Yeah, yeah.
3: so it is. A, it's yeah. kind of borderline, sort of Cinderella fantasy, But mm-hmm. I think you would really like um, my favorite early female English writer is Afra Ben, oh. who was who wrote um, various plays and wrote a novel as well. And she was uh, she came over from um, Holland. She was supposedly a spy as well. Uh, And she was accused of being a prostitute as well. There's a bit where she said, I hang out the sign of Angelica. And this was this idea about whether or not Mm -hmm. this was a sort of sign of it being um, a brothel. Um, So one thing I really hate about the history of women's literature is that there's this marking point in Victorian times where everything goes a bit staid. And because we've celebrated, I mean, I don't get on at all with George Eliot. um, And because we celebrated that so much, then you can forget that those early 18th century writers like Eliza Haywood, who were you know, mm. slightly and and really often really grimly depressing mm. this. Um I think Mary Hayes is it who's got a memoirs of Emma Courtney is just a phenomenally depressing book. Um the work of, of Mary um Godwin, yeah. Shelley I can't get the name right. Craft Godwin yeah. and then yeah, yeah that, I get the surname is um, all right. Mary, book is a, Mary yeah. that's deeply depressing. But,
0: Unremittingly um, grim.
3: But I think that's why actually we probably ended up with Austen being so lionized because yeah. a lot of women from that period wrote books that were ultimately realistic and therefore depressing. Yes. I think
5: it all went wrong when female authors stopped taking the piss out of clergymen. <laughs> um, because uh, Jane Austen's clergymen are always ridiculous. Mr Collins is maybe Collins, my favourite. Yeah. Yeah. After
3: Mr Bennet um, he's maybe my and, favourite.
5: And, but then once you get further on into the kind of Victorian era you get George Eliot who just writes about clergymen as if they're, they're the
3: best great. thing you've ever heard but of. But I yet. bet you're a Christina Rossetti fan, Laurie.
0: A little bit. A little bit. You, you can't see on the you can't see on the tape, but um, Helen's giving this terrible look. Well, I think it's the, <laughs> your whole outfit today is a little bit kind of goblin. fair A little, affair, kind of. little bit goblin. But I may have done a series of GCSE artworks based on Goblin Market. Goblin Market. That <laughs> was quite.
3: Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that came on that bombshell. Oh no, I sound like Top Gear. Uh, thank you very much to Laurie and Caroline. Today's podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Raphael Baer, Kate Belgrave, Caroline Crampton, George Eaton, Laurie Penny and Alan White. It was produced by Caroline Crampton, edited by Philip Morn, and our theme music is taken from Devil With The Devil by The Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. We'll be back next week and you can find us at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.